Lord, thank you for the ability to trust you in dark times. Father, the ability to know you, but even more than that, to be known by you. So God, today I pray you would lift the spirit of the one who is with us, who needs to know that you are ever with us, even in the storm. For it's in Jesus' good name I pray. Amen. Amen. As you're having a seat and grabbing your Bibles and getting to Mark chapter 6 this morning, he knows I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to be too obnoxious about it, but we have a pseudo guest with us this morning. We have been praying for months now for Mike Clevenger. Yeah, he's sitting right there. Hey! (laughs) And if you're a guest with us, you're like, how do I get that treatment? Mike has been through quite the ordeal medically and health-wise, and we are thankful he's here. We're thankful that God has done some amazing things and is going to continue to do some amazing things. So God is so very good. And uh, if you're sick and you go near him, we will tackle you. I think that's pretty fair. Holly will take you out. <laughs> now, we are, we are so thankful to God. We're so thankful for how, even in the darkest of times, you can be trusted. I think you're going to notice a theme at some point this morning. Mark chapter 6, we have some work to do. Uh, just to give you a little background of where, where we're going to start, we're going to start in verse 30 of the chapter. Oh, let me get this out of the way where this is more important than anything else today. I just wanted to let you know how committed I am and was willing to be. I got this shirt for today months ago. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, it's my fault. And, and, and now, I, and this is going to sound terrible, but now, in sort of a kind of way I can relate to you, I don't know what to do now. Like on Super Bowl Sunday, what do I do? Normally, I have a team to cheer for in the Super Bowl. But, but you know how that works, so love me, walk alongside me, pray for me, pray for me. I'm just kidding. God's good. I'm looking forward to a lot of really unhealthy food tonight. Um... And really not caring who wins tonight. It's going to be kind of nice. So, all right, so back to the work we have to do. So um, Mark chapter 6, just to kind of give you a little bit of background. I'm going to move this up just a touch here and see if I can't fall off this thing. Here we go. Um, so in Mark chapter 6, what, there's a couple of things that happen that I'm, I'm not going to jump into. Probably one of the things that we need to know is that Jesus takes his disciples, he takes the apostles, and he commissions them, and he sends them out to do the work. All right, and they go out and they, they do the work, and, and, and it's interesting that as they go, Mark goes into another story. It's kind of Mark's way. We talked about this a few times. Mark likes sandwiches. So he'll start a story, he'll put a story in the middle, and then he'll end the story that he had started with. So he sends them out to do the work of the ministry, and, and, and then he, he starts talking about John the Baptist. And, and he talks about the story of John the Baptist, how King Herod heard about the miracles that the, the, the disciples and the apostles were performing, and... And, and, and King Herod heard about it, and he thought, that's got to be this guy, John the Baptist, come, come back to life. I'm in so much trouble. And it explains the story how Herod had John the Baptist killed. Uh, in the other accounts of what we're going to go through today, in the other accounts, it actually refers to the death of John the Baptist as being something that is communicated to Jesus before he makes this next move. And, and, and the, the communication of the death of John the Baptist in Jesus' heart seems to be something that is greatly troubling Jesus. A little bit overwhelming even. 
And here you look at verse 30. That's where we're going to begin. Let me, let me start reading the first couple of verses. It says, the apostles. Now, now, the apostles are coming back from the ministry that Jesus had sent them out to do. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. And Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and, and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going and they didn't even have time to eat. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place, but many saw them leaving and recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of Jesus. So, so you have G the disciples returning from their ministry, and Jesus looks at them and says, okay, guys, well done. It's time for a day off. Let's, let's retreat for a little while. Let's rest. I know how hard this has been for you. In fact, the comment is made by Mark that they didn't even have time to grab something to eat. Have you had days like that? So, so seriously, and I mean this, don't, don't overlook that. When you read Scripture, understand it's written for you to understand. You can relate. We've all had those days. You get to the end of the day, and it feels like your stomach's about to digest your liver because you haven't eaten anything all day. And it's just like, what happened? I was so busy, I didn't even think to eat. I was so busy, I didn't have time to eat, but I thought about it a lot. That's usually the case for me. And that's happening here with the disciples. They haven't even had time to eat. And Jesus says, let's go rest for a while. But as they get in the boat and they're trying to go to their destination, a remote place, it says the crowds are able to look out on the water and see their boat. I guess that's how boats go across the lake. I just made that up, it's pretty good. <laughs> They want to see where they're going. And it says they race in front of them. They, they arrive to the destination before Jesus and the disciples even get there. You even get the sense that word is traveling so very fast that more people than even had seen them show up when they try to park the boat on the shore. Look at verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw this large crowd. Now think about it for a moment. You have been working so very hard all day long, you haven't even had time to eat. And you see people waiting for you when you walk in the door. Jesus gets to the shore. He looks out. He sees this large crowd. And he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So then he began to teach them many things. Instead of being angry, Jesus had compassion Here's the word of the day. I want you all to learn it. I want it to be stuck in your head. It's a Greek word, so you're going to feel smart. Until you hear it, then you're not going to feel so smart. Splagnizo. Isn't that a cool word? Splagnizo. Say it with me. Splagnizo. There you go. You are a Greek expert now. Splagnizo means compassion. The idea is that it comes from your innards. It's this gut-wrenching feeling that doesn't stop with the feeling but leads to action. So, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but if you watch television, uh, every once in a while they'll flash this commercial on for the SPCA, and Sarah McLaughlin is singing, in the arms of angels. <laughs> and the hope is that the gut-wrenching nature of the song and the video and pictures of those poor little puppies will create within you this gut-wrenching feeling that leads you to send them a bunch of money. Spagnizo. Compassion that leads to action. And as you read through the New Testament, what you find is that word splagnizo, that word for compassion, is used only of Jesus in the New Testament. 
And as he looks at these people, he is filled with this level of compassion, this, this splagnizo, because he looks at the people as being helpless sheep. And you may not know a lot about sheep, and you might. There are very few animals as dependent upon a shepherd as a sheep. Without a shepherd, uh, the sheep will wander and get lost. Without a shepherd bringing them to good places to graze, sheep will starve. Without bringing them to water, sheep will die of thirst. Without the shepherd, wolves can come in and devour the sheep. And so as Jesus looks at the people, that's what he sees. These people have no hope of maintaining anything on their own. They need a shepherd. And so instead of being angry, Jesus begins to teach and show his compassion for these people. While Jesus wasn't angry and Jesus wasn't frustrated, it appears the disciples may have been a little bit disgruntled. Now remember, they've been working so hard they haven't had any time to eat. And then Jesus sees the crowd and puts the rest, the break, the food on hold, and he begins to teach instead of allowing the disciples to rest, to break, to eat. And so you get to verse 35, and suddenly it grows late. The disciples approach him and say, listen, Jesus, this place is deserted. It's already late. Send these people away so they can get to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Don't you think maybe they're projecting their own desires? We're starving. Let's get rid of the people. Oh, it's so late, Jesus. Let them go, into the, to, go, go to Hardy's. Let them grab a little something to eat. Jesus says this in verse 37. <laughs> you... Give them something to eat. The you is emphasized in the Greek. You, you, you give them something to eat. And they say to Jesus, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? So basically, I like sarcasm an awful lot. That might be the most sarcastic verse in all of scripture. And it's crazy because the disciples are saying it to Jesus. Jesus, they, they said, Jesus, we, we need to get rid of these people. We need to move them. I mean, we got we to gotta find them, some, get, let them get some food. And, and then Jesus says, why don't you guys, you guys go and, and get your little food cart and whip them up something real quick to eat. And their response is, wait, you want us to find eight months worth of salary to feed 5,000 men and their families? What are you asking us to do, Jesus? You're crazy. And now, in their defense, you remember when they were sent out to do ministry a few verses ago? If you read that passage, Jesus sends them out to ministry without spare clothing, without any money, without any food. And so here they are, surrounded by all these people, all these hungry people, and Jesus says, I want you to take what you have and feed them. Well, they know right out of the gate they're over their head. That there is absolutely no way they can do anything about this. And so Jesus says to them, how many loaves do you have Go and see. And they find out. And they said, we have five and two fish. The, the two fish added on the end there makes it feel like the disciples are looking really hard to find as much food as they can. How many loaves do we have? Okay, how many loaves do you find? I found one, I found one, I got five. Hey, this kid's got two fish, let's take it. And they come to Jesus and we have five loaves, we have two fish. Now, don't think full bread loaves. These are small barley cakes that aren't much bigger than a dinner roll. Okay, these are probably eaten by the poor most often. And when you think fish, don't think fish. Think sardine fish. Five loaves, two fish. That's lunch for a grown man who's not very hungry. And 
Jesus says this in verse 39. He instructed the disciples to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed. And he broke the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. And everyone ate and was satisfied. I love some of the detail that Mark gives here. They sat them down on the green grass. I mean, you get the picture. Remember, Peter is probably sharing with Mark a lot of the information of these stories. And and so you get the idea that it's burnt in Peter's memory. Not only the, the green grass that they sat on, but also the way the people sat. It says they sat in groups. That word groups is the same word that's used for rows of vegetables in your garden. And so as Peter is imagining it, he's seeing it, he's like, okay, they sat down on the green grass, they sat down in these, these groups, and Jesus took the five loaves, and he took the two fish, and he offered a blessing. And there's a, a few common blessings for, for mealtimes uh, for, for the Hebrew people, the most common being this, blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who bringest forth bread from the earth. And then he broke it. It says, he kept on giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He kept on giving. How is it possible you keep on giving when you start with five loaves and two fish? He kept on giving to the disciples and they kept setting it before the people and the people ate and it wasn't like a little nibble. They ate and it says everyone ate and was satisfied. What a simple statement but astonishing. But it doesn't end there. Verse 43. They picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. 12 baskets doesn't necessarily represent a whole lot of... I mean, it can represent something in the Israelite history. It can certainly represent the 12 tribes of Israel. I think more importantly and more specifically in this moment is the fact that there were 12 disciples and Jesus wanted every single one of them to go around and pick up leftovers. So every single one of them gets a basket. And now it's no longer about them standing before Jesus and saying, we don't have anything. Now instead it's them walking through the crowd, picking up leftovers and realizing how much God has. Let me jump out of this story just for a moment before we move on and make two applications for us this morning. First, it has to do with your new word of the day, splagnizo. May I say to you that the heart of Jesus beats with compassion for you today just as it did for the crowds on that day. Maybe you doubt that. Please don't judge the attitude of Jesus based on the way you feel about yourself. The heart of Jesus beats with compassion for you today just as it did that day. He is full of compassion and he loves you. We're going to talk about that more in a few minutes but please remember that. And on the other side, for application of splagnizo, and that needs to be our spirit and our attitude towards other people. 
as easy as it would have been for Jesus to get to the the shore and look out at all these crowds coming, he could have just said, shop's closed. We're done for the day. Sorry, everybody go home. Instead, in spite of fatigue, in spite of the desire to escape from the crowds, Jesus saw the people for exactly who they were, people in need. So we must be a compassionate splagnizo people. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what Union Bridge, New Windsor, Tawnytown, Westminster, and beyond all those, what it would look like if this group of people just in this room oozed oozed splagnizo for those people in those communities. Can you imagine what our community would look like if we truly were dedicated to loving other people best? Can you imagine what would happen if we were sold out to invest all of our time, energy, and resources as as much as within us was able to, 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 to invest in showing compassion to the people who surround us? Man, it's worthwhile, not just because we get to see, ooh, look at the results, it'd be amazing. It's not, not just worthwhile that way. It's worthwhile because it's modeled after Jesus himself. So how do you view other people who are in need? Who can't find their way? Who are wandering? Let, let, me, let, me, let me oversimplify an application with an action point. This is way oversimplification. This is like not even training wheels. This is just learning to crawl, okay? Every morning that we gather, there are men and women sitting in this place who are feeling like they are unnoticed and who might in fact leave here going unnoticed because we exist within our own comfort zones. So there's investment, there's risk involved when you get into the lives of other people, but one of the reasons we gather is to be a body of people who aren't just encouraged, but who encourage. It costs us something. But let me give you an easy way to do it. First four. The first four minutes after the service is done, the first four minutes at the conclusion of the service, make it your goal to reach out to people who aren't in your comfort zone, whether that be an unfamiliar face or a familiar face, it's just not somebody you talk to every day, or the face of the person who is obviously feeling lonely. First four minutes. Or if maybe that intimidates you a little bit too much right out of the gate, we'll, we'll go surface level with the first four. And we'll say, let's make the first four people you greet at the end of the service be people who are outside of your comfort zone. And let's make a universal pass right now for this morning. Every conversation at the end of the service, begin with your name. That way, if somebody doesn't know your name, they're not intimidated to come have a conversation with you. And so if you see me run up to you immediately after the service... I'll be like, hi, I'm Frank. But let, let's, let, let's, let's work on being compassionate with people who are even here. Let's live a life of selfless generosity with our time and our energy and our resources because here's, shocker, 
That's why he gave them to us. He didn't give them to us to stuff in our pockets. He gave us time, energy, and resources to encourage other people with. Splagnizo. We need t-shirts. I said something months back. Well, you ain't dead yet. Live like it. And I made a comment about how that should be on a coffee mug. I got a coffee mug with it on it now. It's pretty cool. Um, so, <laughs> Splagnizo. Let me jump to another application of, of this story. Inability. Inability. Let me begin with this question. How many of you are facing a situation where you have no answers? You don't even have good ideas. I'm there. And that's kind of the heart of the disciples in this moment. I mean, they stand before Jesus and they're like, this isn't even enough to, to feed a grown man. And yet these five loaves and two fish are supposed to be used to feed 5,000 men? Jesus says, listen, go find whatever you can. Whatever you have, you bring it to me. And then the crowds ate until they were satisfied. See, recognize, the disciples did nothing to add to the situation. The only thing they added to the situation was more inability and more weakness. Okay, so um, I hope you're ready. Here comes the pep talk of the week. You're not awesome. There are things you absolutely stink at. And what we've got to do is to learn to understand our weakness, embrace our weaknesses, and stop insulating ourselves from our weaknesses. Get past the fact that you want everybody to come up and rub your back and be like, it'll be okay. You certainly can play basketball next year. No, you can't. You're terrible. <laughs> That's okay. You don't need to be awesome at everything. That's the beauty of the gospel. God's awesome. You're not. It's okay. All right. Okay, good. All right. You have permission. You can clap. It's okay. <laughs> Stop pretending like you don't have weakness. I think that's kind of the end of it. You're the only one. If you pretend like you don't have weakness, you're the only one who actually thinks that, even though I know the truth, you don't even think that. So stop, stop pretending that if no one else has told you what your weakness is, come see me afterwards, okay? I'll hook you up. It's my, my gift to you today. <laughs> Listen, it's, it's, it's in our weakness that God's strength is magnified, guys. I, that, so this week I was made aware in a very terrible way. I can't change a person's heart. I can't mend a marriage. I can't recreate trust in the heart of someone who's been so horribly offended. I can't explain the whys of yesterday or today and tomorrow ain't looking good either. But I pray I am where he wants me to be. And then while I'm there, I'm going to rely on his perfect strength and my absolute weakness. Listen, he's not telling the disciples, you figure out a way to get this done. He's giving them a chance to be reliant on him. And, and, and picture the disciples for a minute. 5,000 people, uh, it's 5,000 men, so you have no idea how many people are actually there. But just wrap your head around that for a second. 
They're all sitting in their groups on the green grass, very picturesque, and they've handed Jesus the five loaves of two fish. He blesses them and he breaks them. He starts handing them to the disciples to go distribute to the 5,000 plus people. So here you are, one of his disciples, walking down the road like, okay, here's your food, and you walk back to Jesus, and he's like, oh, here's some more. And you're like, here's your food. And you walk back, and he's like, here's more. Here's more. At what point do the disciples start crossing each other, cracking up? I mean, that's, that's, that's what hilarity means. It's that over a exuberance of joy and thanksgiving like this is crazy i mean i think at first they're probably like i'm sorry this is all we got i'm so sorry i'm sorry i'm I'm sorry this is all we got and then they're like sprinting back like look what we got more we got more it just keeps coming it just keeps coming and it's not because of the disciples it's because god has chosen to use their weakness as his vehicle to demonstrate his strength He's so very good. He's so very good to allow the disciples to not only come to the end of themselves in their weakness, but to be overwhelmed by his power by handing each one of them a doggy bag. It's amazing that it shifts from the very little the disciples could produce to the abundance that God provides. And that's how great he is. All right. Second story. This one will be shorter, maybe. Verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd And after he said goodbye to them, to the disciples, he went away to the mountain to pray. Just a couple of quick comments on that. So why did this happen? Why did Jesus suddenly, I mean, the whole spirit changes, right? The whole spirit is different. Um, There's there's a passage in John 6 that covers the same event, the the feeding of the 5,000. It says, when the people saw the sign that had just happened, when they noticed that Jesus had done this incredible miracle and fed that many people with so little, it says they were about to come to Jesus and take him by force and make him their king. And so here, Jesus is like immediately, he's like, boys, get in the boat, I'm going to the mountain. And he says, farewell to the boys. They get in the boat. Jesus ascends to the mountain to pray, which I I love that, especially in the book of Mark. The book of Mark, Jesus escapes to pray three times. The first time he is standing in the house and they are bringing all their sick and demon possessed to him and he is healing them and healing them and healing them and casting out demons and healing them and healing them. And the people just keep coming. It's this big hoopla. And then the first thing in the morning, they go to look for Jesus. He's missing. Where is he? He's up in the mountain praying. Here, Jesus feeds 5,000 and immediately he heads up to the mountain to pray. Later in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus escapes to a quiet place to pray. What's the motif there? What's the theme there in the book of Mark? Many believe, and I'm one of the many, that those moments in the book of Mark that highlights Jesus getting away from the people to pray is he's dealing with another temptation of his soul. See, there's a way for him to lead Israel without the cross. If he rides the coattails of popularity from all his healing and demon um, 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 exorcisms, if he allows, after the feeding of the 5,000, the people to take him and make him king, and then you know the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's another way. That was free. He heads to the mountain to pray, sends the disciples away in a boat, verse 47. Well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea, in the middle of that lake there, and Jesus was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind 
was against them. Now, let me, let me stop here. So how does Jesus see them? He's got amazing eyesight. I don't know. Literally, there are people who spend pages upon pages upon pages in commentaries trying to explain that because this was happening during the Passover, it would have been a full moon, and so Jesus somehow was able to sit up on the mountain. We don't know. We just know that as Jesus was praying, he was aware of the struggle of his disciples. Don't miss that. And understand, the struggle of the disciples isn't necessarily danger. They're just exhausted. They're hungry. And it says they're trying to row into a strong headwind, and they're unable to make any progress. And actually, that that word, when Jesus saw them straining at the oars, that word straining is the Greek word for torture. That's how difficult it was for them. The end of verse 48, very early in the morning. Jesus came toward them, walking on the sea, and wanted to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Let me, let me stop there. So very early in the morning, the literal phrase there is the fourth watch of the night. That is somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. Jesus leaves his prayer, heads down to the water, and walks on top of the water to head to the disciples. Now, throughout the years, people have struggled with the idea of Jesus walking on the water. I will say this, they should struggle with that idea. People don't walk on the water. That's kind of the point. Scripture teaches us that it's something that only God can do. Job, in Job chapter 9, it says, God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Jesus is walking on the water, and we get to this very strange phrase that there's a lot of crazy ideas for. He came walking toward them, walking on the sea, and he wanted to pass by them. Why did Jesus want to pass by them? So let me, let me just throw a couple of options at you that I rather enjoy. I, I'll be honest with you, I have a suggestion that I'm going to make at the end, but otherwise, this is one of those questions we might ask in heaven, but in sincerity, who cares? But that's what we'll move on. Okay. So why would Jesus want to pass by them? He was planning to pass by them because he didn't see their trouble. Well, that can't be true because it says he saw their trouble, right? So that one's out. He wanted to pass by them because he was trying to test their faith. Maybe. He wanted to pass by them, which actually means disciples thought he was going to pass by them. Possible. This is my personal favorite. He wanted to sneak by them and pop up on the other side of the boat and surprise them. (laughs) Can you imagine, like, Jesus is like... This is going to be awesome. (laughs) Ah! (laughs) Um, Somehow I don't think that one's accurate. Funny, inaccurate. Perhaps this is Jesus' way of flashing back to an Old Testament picture. God speaking to Moses when Moses had said, I just want to see you. God said, no, you can't look at me. You'll die. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and my glory will pass by you. Or when he spoke to Elijah, He hit him in the mountain as God passed by. We we don't know. But what we do know, what we do know, because it says it right here, what we do know is they thought they saw a ghost. Now, interesting, there is an old sailor's belief that just before a sailor drowned, they would see a ghost. Sorry, it begs the question. How do you know that? If they drowned, who can testify to it? 
Anyway, sorry. So who knows? Anyway, they thought they saw a ghost. <laughs> All right. They're terrified. Immediately, uh, verse 50, the end of verse 50. Immediately he spoke with them and he said this. Have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. See, Jesus has said this already, hasn't he? But in the middle of the two things that he has said to the disciples at one point or another, have courage and don't be afraid. In the middle, he says, it is I. Greek phrase, you don't need to remember this one, ego I me. That very well could be a, re- a reference to the very personal name of God. When Moses asked God for his name, God said, I am. That's God's personal name. It's how God describes himself. He says, there was never a time where I wasn't. I was, I am, and I will always be. And there's no other person who has ever been defined as that. And as Jesus stands before them, he says, I'm not a teacher, I'm not a prophet, I'm not a ghost. I am. So don't be afraid. Verse 51. Jesus got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased. Yet another storm stopped. They were completely astounded. Because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. Well, that took a turn. So Jesus walks on the water. He says, don't be afraid. Have courage. It's me. He gets in the boat. The storm ceases. It says they're astounded. I think at first when you read that word, you're like astounded. Okay, but, but what this astounded means is beside themselves, freaked out. This time, being astounded is not a positive. Why? Because they were astounded as a result of the reminder of who Jesus is being lost on them. See, their faith should be growing in this moment. Friends, there's a warning here for us. If you think about it just for, just for a moment, think about all the things the disciples have witnessed, what they've been privileged to see, the teaching with authority, the casting out of demons, the healing of a leper, Simon, uh, 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 his mother-in-law being healed of a fever, the paralytic being healed, the man with a withered hand being restored to wholeness, the legion of demons being cast out, a woman with the, the flow of blood being made clean, Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead. They even saw their own power and inability magnified when they went on mission. And don't forget, these, these same men had already been on, in a boat in the middle of a storm, and Jesus calmed the wind and the waves with a word. And to top it all off, it was just hours earlier, they witnessed Jesus multiply five loaves and two fish to feed more than 5,000 people. And they were the ones. They were the ones who found the five loaves and the two fish. They were the ones who handed out the bread and the fish. They were the ones who gathered up the leftovers. They've seen all of that. And they still don't get it. They don't understand. Somehow, they've missed it. Mark says their hearts were hardened. There's a warning for us we can't pass over. It's possible to be a believer in Jesus and still have your heart hardened for a season. Disciples gathered around Jesus, saw what he did, heard what he did, were a part of what he did, and then completely missed what he did. And like them, no matter how experienced 
are familiar we may be with the Bible, the church, the things of Christ, we too can get to the place where we have our hearts hardened. And my experience, and that's only what it is, it's just my experience. I come with no other authority. It's just my experience. But my experience is most often that happens as a result of a storm we find ourselves in. I mean, Jesus would be pretty justified just to leave them there for a while in the boat to see if they learned their lesson. But he loves his disciples. Those hard-hearted disciples. So he climbs in the boat and he stills the wind. He brings them safely to shore. He rescues them. He loves to rescue even hard-hearted disciples. It's really important because Jesus isn't minimizing, or sorry, Mark isn't minimizing the need for repentance in this story. He doesn't tell us that the disciples were so grieved and sorry that when Jesus got in the boat, they prayed and asked God's forgiveness. They didn't beg Jesus' forgiveness. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but that's not Mark's focus. Mark wants us to understand that regardless of any response of the disciples, the initiative of Jesus is what rescued them. Not their plea for forgiveness. That's the basic truth of the gospel. It's not that you and I believe. We must believe. It's not that you and I have repented. We must repent. Basic truth of the gospel is that he loved us first. He climbs into the boat. He rescues us even in our hard hearts, even in the midst of our unbelief. He rescues us because he loves us. And because he first loved us, we can now love him. Splagnizo. Jesus loves you. Not the smiley face kind of Jesus loves you. He loves you. He's committed to you. And if you're one of those disciples who are hard-hearted, there's going to be words of rebuke and words of tenderness as he tries to draw you back to himself. I just wonder if you're listening to him as he calls you. Are you listening to his tones of grace and love and mercy as he pleads with you to understand who he is? as he pleads with you to trust in him, as he pleads with you to rest upon him. I wonder if you've forgotten the loaves. There was no way forward, but Jesus made a way. And he did it because he can. He did it because he's God. He did it because he has compassion for you. And he did it because he loves you. I know, I know, the storm is rough. The storm is torture as you try to row that boat into the wind, right? Good news. Jesus is the Lord of the storm. Father, would you please care for us in a way that only you can? Would you reach hearts that need to be reached this morning? God, I know every single one of us is in a, a different place in our walk with you, but God, I pray for those who, who are simply just wounded. And because they're wounded, Father, they, they've hardened themselves to you. God, I ask that you would allow them to hear clearly your call of compassion for them. Would you remind them of what it is you've done in the past? Would you remind them the lesson of the loaves that they are in fact weak, that you are so incredibly strong. Would you be pleased this morning 
with our obedience. It's in Jesus' good name I pray. Amen. This morning we had the privilege and the opportunity to observe communion together. Communion is a time where we gather uh, together as a church body, as a church family, and we take the elements that are left by Jesus for us as a picture. It says that Jesus was with his disciples the night before he was betrayed, and he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them. He said, drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So this morning as a church, what we will do is is we'll leave our seats. You, You can leave to the right and make your way to one of the tables and take the elements back to your seat with you and then we'll observe communion together. But this morning, as we look at these pictures Let's be reminded. Let's be reminded of what it is that he has done for us and being willing to send his son, Jesus Christ, for us to have his body broken, his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Your sins. Consider what it means that Jesus came and paid for every single one of them. When everyone's received their elements, I'll return and we will observe communion together.
look at the picture of the broken body of Jesus and His shed blood. May we be reminded that the compassion of Jesus that was demonstrated to those folks as they sat at the feeding of the 5,000 is the same compassion Jesus demonstrated for us when he stood before his disciples said, I'm going to break this bread so that you will always remember how much I love you. We're going to share this cup so that you'd be reminded of what that love really means. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Gracious Father, as we take just a moment to share communion with one another, Father, I pray that we would remember that what we are doing is, in fact, proclaiming your love and compassion for us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he came and took my place and bore my wrath and my shame and gave me his righteousness, which is so very undeserved. This, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, broken and shed for the forgiveness of your sins.